I want to speak on God is faithful and not fickle. You, the book of Corinthians is difficult because it's so biographical. And you'll come to this passage, and you probably think, I don't have a clue what's going on. Well, let me help you out. Paul has a party that has risen against him in the church. They're Judaizers, most likely from Jerusalem. And they've stirred up the church, and he's had them, maybe at one time, the majority. We Probably the church, this church is coming against Paul. And here's the man that established the church, evangelized them, stayed with them for 18 months. And now they're being influenced by these parties that say, he's not a real apostle. His message isn't true. His gospel's not true. You've got to go back under the law. Uh, all of this stuff. And so they're opposing him. And this is the most biographical of all of his books. It's the favorite book of pastors because it shows that the best of men can have people raise up against them in a church and that a church can be a dangerous place to be, especially if you're the leader of it. And Paul was. He was the founder of this church. And so this is this party that's working against him. Now, believe it or not, they found a great opportunity to say he was fickle, that he was duplicitous, that he was a vacillating, you couldn't count on him. Why? Because he changed his itinerary plans to come among them. Here's, he had a ministry over there. He had it north, Macedonia. Up in Macedonia, you've got Berea. You've got Thessalonica. You've got the port of Neapolis. You've got Philippi. That was his Macedonian northern churches. South, Go down to the Corinthian Isthmus out of Athens, and you've got the Achaia ministries where Corinth is. Well, what he had intended to do is he was going to go over from Ephesus. He's in Ephesus. I'm going to sail over. I'm going to see you at Corinth. I'll go north probably to Philippi. Then I'll come back to Corinth, double visit, he said. I'll see you twice. And then I'll go with that group that's taking the offering to relieve the poor in Jerusalem. That's what he wanted to do. Now, something you don't know, he talks about a painful visit he made. Uh, authors and different scholars are divided. Luke doesn't record the painful visit. Most likely, he's in Ephesus. He hears about this party spirit. They're about to upset the whole church, turn the whole church against him. He probably made a trip from Ephesus over to Corinth, and he dealt with this uh, opposing party to his apostleship and to his ministry. This whole book, he's having to defend himself. You may not think this is spiritual. The Holy Spirit thought it was. He wanted you to know about it. And so he made a painful visit. He sent two letters, 1 Corinthians 5. He had written them how to deal with, with the incestuous brother and the sins of that church. Then he wrote another letter they called the severe letter. He made several visits. And so now they're saying, you know what? You're fickle. His opponents, of course. 
You're fickle. You said you were going to come to us, then go north, then come. And you're not carrying through. You change your plans. Aha, we got you. You're fickle, and so is your message. And so is your God. Because uh, the issue goes this way. Are you a reliable person? And what is really heartbreaking is that uh, people form their opinion of God based on you. You're the screen they go through, and here they're using that personal attack. I mean, you've got to be begging the question when the only thing you're going to nail him for, and they're going to nail him for other things. They're going to say he's ugly. They're going to say he's not a good speaker. They're going to say he's a coward. This church is brutal to him. And it's this minority group that at one time was becoming the majority. And so Paul takes up the pen, and he's saying, wait, wait, you may think I'm fickle. All I did was change my plans according to the will of God, and now you're going to use this to discredit my apostleship, discredit my message, discredit the gospel that we brought, and He's defending himself, and he's explaining God is reliable. God is faithful even if I change my plans. Even if I change. Now, now I've got to lay a little groundwork here. One of the favorite ways that the opponents of the gospel take it apart is they say the church is full of too many hypocrites. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Or oh, they've, they've got someone in the church they don't like. Oh, oh you know what? They didn't, pay that. They, they didn't pay that debt. So the church is full of uh, liars. Or for sure they're going to find uh, some pastor that goofed up some way, messed with the money, messed with the women, messed with the... Say, you're all just phonies. You're all phonies. I don't want it. Paul is saying our gospel does not rest on our infallibility. Hear me? Because preachers think they've got to be infallible. Our message is infallible, but not our life. We are not infallible. Ask our wives. How can I believe it? You don't live it good enough. Well, it'd be good if you, the messenger would not be a liar. That would be nice. Not be a huckster, as Paul said he was not. I'm not selling the gospel. I'm not a ripoff. I'm none of those things. But it's amazing how we judge the message by the messenger which puts a great weight on us. James said, you ought not to be many teachers because you receive more severe judgment. If I understand that right, I'm subject to the greatest judgment to come of anyone in this church because I'm the primary teacher. Will you get severely judged for the way you ran your company? No, but a pastor will be severely judged who teaches the Word of God. 
Would you like to join us? Would you like to join the judged crowd? We get judged a lot. And so he's laying this. He's going for this. And he says, let me tell you two things that prove God is reliable and he's faithful. Number one, he sent Jesus Christ, and he is the yes, the affirmation to everything God promised. And what he is saying, God promised, I will send one who will bear your transgressions. That was part of Paul's message. I've told you the gospel that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again. I told you all the things of 1 Corinthians in my first letter. I told you that God keeps promises. What he's promised, he will keep. And his sure yes is that he sent Jesus Christ, inhabited a manger, died under Pontius Pilate, rose again the third day. Do you think this kind of a God is fickle? You think this kind of God is yes and no? That he's, he, he's not sure what is, you never know what this God's going to, he may change his plans. Paul is going right at it. You're trying to nail me and trying to put it on my God and put it on my calling as an apostle. Let me tell you, I proclaim a yes God and not a no God. I proclaim the God that can keep his word, that is reliable, and his final yes with Jesus Christ. That's what he wants them to know. I did not handle a duplicitous, vacillating, change your mind. Oh, it's all, oh, you never know what they're going to do. You can know what God's going to do. He's going to do what he promised. And Christ is his vindication of all of his promises. You know, it's amazing. I don't even know my mailman anymore. Do you know yours? And I keep receiving the mail, and I don't care if I know him or not. I used to know my mailman. We used to talk a lot. We grew up together in Richmond. I knew a lot of the same people. I don't know who it is. I don't really care. Just get the mail here. What do you expect of God's mailmen? You know what? I don't even know if I like my newspaper boy. He throws it at 5.30. Some days I have to pick it up a little bit. But do you know your, your, your paper boy? I don't care if I know. I'm, I might not like him. Who cares? Just deliver the paper. What you need to ask yourself is don't make every human messenger pass all of your grid. I like him. I don't. Ooh, that irritates me. Ooh, that, what in the world are they saying? Sure quiet in this place. What are they saying? Are they telling you the truth? Are you hearing God? Is God talking? Well, I don't like that, Pastor. Why not? Well, he... he you know, sometimes he preaches, gets on your toes. Why, honey, you need to be God, not to. Let's, other words, church can be full of personality contests. The Corinthian church had split up. One was part of Cephas. One was part of Paul. One was a part of Apollos. And they even had the Jesus party. You know they were the super spiritual clique. 
And they were really spiritual. And he said, what are these cliques doing? Did any of these people die for you? Did any preacher die for you people? Are they? Were, you know what? If Paul was a crook, if he preached the truth, the truth is what sets you free, Amen. not the preacher. We ought to be conforming our life to the Word of God. I'm not trying to make an excuse for sinful behavior or inappropriate behavior, but it's easy to discredit the message by discrediting the messenger. And all of God's messengers, hear me, all of God's messengers are flawed. Puritans used to say it's a miracle that God can take a crooked stick and make a straight line. We're all crooked sticks. We're all sinners, just like the people we preach to. You know what he said in Hebrews 5, 1 and 2? When God gave Israel a priesthood, he said, he picked men of like weaknesses that they might sympathize with the people. Hebrews 5, 1 and 2. I know something about raising kids. I know something about marriage. I know something about burying loved ones. I know something about being broke. I, I've experienced, I know something about getting angry. I know something about struggling to forgive people that drive you batty. I know what it is to be talked about, lied about, criticized. When I told my father, I felt God was calling me to preach. He said, well, if you can live with three things, you might make it. And I said, well, what's, Dad, how do you know? You're an iron worker. You don't know anything about preaching. He said, let me tell you three things you got to live with. Can you live with being criticized? I said, no, they're all going to love my ministry. He said, no, get ready. They, they're not. Can you, can you live with being falsely accused? I'm only 15. I don't know what he's talking about. He said, can you live with being unappreciated? And I've been greatly appreciated in this ministry. But there's times, let me tell you, there's many a pastor. They have to live with always expectations and no affirmations. Always judged. Always criticized. Always. Yeah, I don't like you. I don't like you. You're not my kind. You're not. Hey, why don't we get... Paul said, I don't care what you say about my person. My message and my apostleship is from God, and I proclaim a faithful God. Our God is faithful. He's passed the test. That's what he's saying. And you don't get that unless you know the biographical conflict he's in in this church. It's a very difficult epistle because of that reason. Then he says, let me tell you what God has done for me and that he's done for you that proves he's faithful and that he will do for us in salvation what he promised in Christ. And he names five things God has done for them. Look what he says in verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you Stand firm in Christ. Now, this word, stand firm, I'm trying to use the NIV so you can save buying a new Bible and you can use the Pew Bibles. I've repented. Some of you have kept bugging me. Uh, it is God 
who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. And that word there is established, uh, to be reliable, to, to be, uh, in other words, the opposite of fickle, vacillating, moving. No, we've been established. Now, how? How can God establish you and I to keep us firm? Where, where we, we, we don't move. Notice how he does it. God the Father makes both us, and he's kind, I believe, to include them because he really wants them to know, God established me. I'm not a fickle man. But he did it for you too, and he did it really in Christ, firm in Christ. God took you the moment you were saved, and there's a preposition here. He put you into Christ, and you are firmly fastened there. You are positioned there, and he doesn't plan to lose you there unless someone can crawl up in heaven and get you out. No, I know. You say you can get out. You can't. Go ahead and try it. The shepherd's bigger than the sheep. He'll, he'll, he'll get your attention if you really know him. If you don't know him, you're in and out anyway. You haven't been established. But he says, we've been established. Established in Christ. And that point he's trying to make is this God uh, is a firm, establishing, count on God. Uh, it, it, it's just not, uh, what could you call it, uh, wishy-washy. Our salvation is, I think I'm in, I think I'm out, I think I'm a yes, I think I'm a no. No, he took you the moment you believed in his son Jesus, the message we preach, and he took you and he got you out of Adam Romans says, I was in Adam, but now he transferred me so that now he says, in my son, I see you as established. You're going to make it because I put you in the only secure place there is in all the universe, in my son. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. That's the only maybe stabilizing thing in your life. I know I'm in Christ. As we were looking in our home Bible study in 1 John this last week, uh, it just jumped off the page as we were in chapter 4. I hope you're enjoying your home Bible study. I tell you, ours, we're having a ball. And uh, uh, when we came to the verse that there's no fear in love, that there's no fear of judgment. I've always struggled with that verse. I thought, well, I'm still afraid of uh, water over my head. I'm still afraid of fire. Uh, uh, I'm still afraid I don't want to be broke. You know, I could be afraid of disease. It's just human fears. What's he talking about? There's no fear. Perfect love casts out fear. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? John is talking about relationships, that we ought to be loving God, we ought to be loving one another. And you know what he's saying? In the kind of love God wants his people to experience, 
There's never any fear it's going to end. That fear, human relationships is fraught with fear and day. Will he leave me? Will she leave me? I share the story of a friend who, after been married for several years, came to me one day, met me at a restaurant, and he said this astounding thing. He says, well, you know what? I don't think she's going to leave. Being a pastor, I was a little shocked. I said, I, I don't understand. He said, I, I, I don't think my wife's going to leave me. I said, well, uh, why would you make such a statement? You've got a wonderful wife. He said, I grew up where nothing was certain in my home. Nothing was certain. I saw my mother abused. I saw a drunken father. Our home was in turmoil every weekend. You never knew if you are going to be kicked out, if your mother was going to be beaten in front of you. Everything was up for grabs every seven days. And he said, I've always... Grown up, you can't trust those you love. They're going to hurt you. The only time I felt affection for my father's when he was drunk. He never showed affection otherwise. So he said, I figured in this new relationship called marriage, the shoe's got to drop some weekend. She's got to tell me it's over. It's over. And so I've been on guard for five to six years waiting for that announcement. But he said, I'm beginning to get the sense she's going to stay. Now I've stayed for 40 years. God says perfect love. God's kind of love is not conditional. You know, you'll never be any worse than when he found you. While we were at our worst, he started loving us. While we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were weak, while we were without Christ, he started loving you, and he knew what you'd be. He established you in Christ. You're in Christ if you're a believer. Are you in Christ? And some of you have had all these broken relationships. You're afraid of life. You're afraid of getting married. I'll just live with her, but I'm not going to marry her because I can't keep a covenant. I don't plan to keep a covenant. God, by covenant, called a new covenant, put you and I in Christ. I'm established in him. This is no fickle God. This is a faithful God. He either has established you or he's a liar. He said, I established you. And so Paul could say, you think someone like me positioned in Christ and established and given the sure word of a Christ who keeps God's promises, you think we are duplicitous? You guys have got to be totally out of your head. And they were. They were false teachers, and they were trying to destroy this church by destroying Paul. Beware of those who mess with God's church. 1 Corinthians 3.17 says, God will destroy them. If you destroy God's temple, he will destroy you. Go attack some rattlesnakes. Don't mess with his church. God will protect his own. Two, he's anointed you. He said, did you know that when he put you in Christ, he anointed you? And, and what's anointing? Well, in the Old Testament, if you were a prophet, a priest, or a king, 
at the initiation of your service in that capacity, they would pour a vial of oil over you, indicating God's presence, uh, God's authenticating you. Some make the oil a type of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I would take that's for sure, but it's the idea of God is with you in this role. God will assist you to carry this out. The presence of God is what the anointing really said. And so, God says, guess what? When he put you in Christ, he anointed you. I mean, you didn't feel it. You know, the oil was just running down you. But he said, when you were put in Christ, you were set apart for service. God's got use of you and for you. And you've actually received a divine promise that his presence will be with you. And he will help you. Now, now we use it in church today as uh, pray for the anointing. Uh, boy, he was an anointed preacher or that kind. And we're meaning the presence of God. Maybe spirit, God really came on him. Guess what? Who all's anointed? Who all? He anointed us. I thought that was just preachers. You know, the Old Testament said, touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. Well, that's true. You don't, don't want to. But guess what? You, you are now said to be anointed. You didn't know that. I know you didn't. Act like you just learned something. Come on. You owe another offering just for that. I never knew I was anointed until God gave me the Bible. 1 John 2.20 You've all received an anointing so that you know everything you need to know and so the Antichrist can't deceive you. First, verse 27, 1 John 2, 20, you have been anointed and you are being taught. No human teacher is the ultimate source of what you need to know. Blessed art thou, Simon Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal to you who I am, but my Father in heaven showed you. You can't know who God is and what his promises are unless the Father teaches you. You can read the Bible till you're blue in the face, and it will still just be ink and paper until the Spirit of God starts teaching you. It, there, this book, won't, that's worthless to you apart from the Spirit. Read it all you want. But if the Spirit is not teaching you, you won't get it. You won't get it. Ask a rabbi today who has the veil over his eyes. Who is that in Isaiah 53? He, he doesn't know who it is. Deborah Anderson found out the night the Spirit of God showed her who it was. See, it's real simple to you because the Spirit's opened her eyes. We've been anointed. Rod Hughes loves to tell the story uh, of when he took over as church administrator and He's going over all the files and, and everything, and we had an audit and wanted to see if our books were in order. And uh, Hazel had to give him the tour. She said, see, I used to just have preacher boys in the office, and we had chaos. Nobody knew what they were doing. We were just too busy teaching the Bible. And so we hired her finally to get some order. And uh, she set up these files. She did this and that. 
And Ron was just saying, man, he said, who taught you this? How did you? And he was bragging on her. And he said, how did you do this? He said, she just raised her hand. She said, I know the enabler. I know the enabler. My sister, she took piano lessons for six months. You, you know what she practiced on? The, the cardboard keyboard, because my folks owned no piano. They lived in Alameda, California, no piano, no instruments in that house. So she practiced as a little girl. First time she ever heard the melodies when she went for the lesson. Because she got to play a piano. She didn't do too bad for six months worth of lessons. And you know what she used to do? People say, where did you learn to play? I know the enabler. I tried to get her to play St. Louis blues and come on, let's do a little ragtime. She's great ragtime music. I love that. Let's do five foot two. That's spiritual. <laughs> Let's do Georgia. Because she could do it. Let's go. And she'd get to play in a while. I'd say, yes, yeah, yeah. Let's go. Keep it up. And then all of a sudden, she'd count a lot. Many times, she'd just, I can't play anymore. I said, yes, you can. She said, I can't. She said, you see, I, I dedicated my hands to the Lord. Amen. That if he'd enable me to learn, I'd play for his glory. And I was just listening to Merle Haggard the other night. He said, give me another drink. I want to forget I ever loved you. Oh, the boy, what a lifting up of your heart. <laughs> give me another drink before I black out. And, you know, on that one, sing me a song back home before I go to the execution chair. Because I want to know an old song Mama taught me when she took me to Sunday school. Could you sing it to me? I'll tell you, just crying. <laughs> I said, then I asked, I wonder what they're going to execute him for. <laughs> but she said, no, no. She said, uh, I got a different purpose for my talent. I serve an enabler that took a girl for the last than a year's worth of lessons. I said, Lord, if you'll enable me. If you'll come on these hands and this head of mine and teach me what a diminished chord is and what an augmented, what minors are, what's a 13th, what's a 7th. If you'll show me how to figure it out, Lord, uh, if you'll enable, you got me. God anointed you to enable you. That's why it's a sin for the pews to be full of people that don't serve. You're either not saved or the Spirit of God must be in total grief. He didn't save you to warm a pew or critique a preacher. He saved you to serve the living God. Amen. Serve the living God. Serve him. He's going to ask you, how did you use what I gave you for me? I, I didn't know how. You didn't want to know how. Did you ever just give him your body? See, it's like in the church. I keep looking for leadership among our men. We need, the men, the women will always follow if the men will lead. And it's hard to find. In our church, we have men with ability who have no availability. So you're just as bad off as if you had no one with ability. 
If you're able and you're not available, so what? The church will never get to see it. How available are you to do God's will? Well, this is too convicting. We've got to keep going. Thirdly, he said he sealed you into Christ. And Ephesians says the Spirit is the seal. And when you talk about a seal in the Bible, you're talking about uh, ownership and which would be identification, your own, and protection. That when you really put that stamp on the letter, uh, the government says we will protect it not to be interfered with until it reaches the destination. Or if you did the wax letters, as they did many documents, if that letter had to arrive to the recipient without that wax being broken, because that would have meant it had been meddled with. Someone had broken into it. So God says, I've sealed my people by my spirit, Ephesians 1.13, and the seal lasts until the day of redemption, Ephesians 4.30. I want to seal you, and this seal is I'm going to identify you as my own, I guarantee you protection until I get you to the destination. There's a divine stamp on you, and you don't realize it. God's already addressed it. And when you die, you go to the right address. He will know where to send you. You've been sealed in Christ. Sealed in Christ. Fourthly, he said, I gave you the Holy Spirit. This couldn't have been a fickle God that gave you all these things. This is what God's done for Paul and them. So he said, guess what? God gave you his Holy Spirit. Uh, is this a fickle God? Is our message, didn't God save you, Corinthians? Don't you remember the day you put faith in Christ and the Spirit flooded your heart with joy and peace and my sins are forgiven? Uh, uh, is there any believer you know that doesn't have the Holy Spirit? There's some you're thinking about. <laughs> See, I, when I grew up, you didn't get the Spirit when you got saved. You had to tarry. You had to, set, you had to stay at the altar. You had to talk in tongues. You had to have something beyond believing to have the Holy Spirit. And so we sought every night in the altar, we'd seek to get the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Jesus said in John 7, 37. On that great day of the feast, he stood and he said, let him who is a thirst come unto me, and I will put in you a river that will spring up into eternal life. Then you're thinking, wow. I wonder what that river is. Then he says, this spake he of the Holy Spirit, which had not yet been given, for he had not yet died. The river is the Spirit that came on the day of Pentecost, and now you don't have to tarry in the upper room anymore. It's God's divine gift to you. The moment he puts you in Christ the moment he establishes you, the moment he anoints you, the moment he seals you, he gave you the gift of the Spirit. What a gift it is to know the Spirit lives within.
And finally, he said, the spirit in you is given as a Arabon. It's a nice little word, Arabon. comes from the Phoenician language, and it simply means earnest down payment. People in business, real estate, what's your earnest money? Uh, you want to buy this place, what earnest do you give me? Pledge money that you promise to carry through and pay off the rest. And that's what he said. God has put his spirit in you as his guarantee that you're going to get the rest of what we've got coming in salvation. You know what's wrong with most of us? Is we're only two-thirds saved, and we feel miserable. You're only two-thirds saved right now. I have been saved, and that means going to hell, facing divine judgment, sins be forgiven. Has that been settled when you come to Christ? I've been justified by faith. I am declared righteous in God's sight based on the merits of Christ. Hallelujah. Every Christian can say amen. amen. Two, I am being saved from indwelling sin. Uh, I don't sin as much as I used to. I, I hope so. I'm not sinless, but I sin less because of the power of the Spirit working out present tense salvation in us. But according to Romans 8.23, I'm groaning with all of creation, longing for the future installment of my salvation where God's going to change my body, redeem my body, get me out of sickness, get me out of prescriptions, get me out of hospitals, get me out of mortuaries, get me out of pain, get me out of a fallen world. It's yet to come. And the guarantee that I'm going to get it, I've got the Spirit right now. I've got the Spirit now. I'm two-thirds saved. So can't you expect some faults? Aren't you tired of groaning? Take Advil just doesn't seem to touch what's ailing you. I mean, all the earthly sorrows, pains, aches, all of this. See, I run around with a lot more folks that's got aches and pains than when I started this church. Man, everybody seemed to be healthy when I started. I just cry if you're healthy. That means you're not 70. I mean, if you're 20, come on, get over it, honey. You need to mow my lawn. <laughs> you need to do something for one of these seniors. So what is his message? God's faithful in that he gave us Christ to keep all of his promises. God is faithful in what he does for us in salvation. He established us pagan people, especially the Corinthians. Paul, a wonderful Jewish rabbi that needed the Christ. He's anointed him, sealed him, given him the Spirit, done all this. And now he says to them, you think just because I changed my plans to see you that that represents a fickle God that won't carry through? You're totally mistaken. I just changed my plans in the will of God. 
I could change plans and God still be faithful, couldn't I? And that's what he's doing. But they seized hold of anything to run him down. I'll say this. One of the greatest deliverances you will get is when you quit running down God's people. God will never use you to run down someone he purchased. I don't care if you like them or not. You don't have to like them. If I liked you as much as I like my wife, I would have married you. <laughs> Sorry, just accept it. I can love you, but I don't like you like I like Carolyn. I can have likes, but I'm oh love to everybody. And sometimes we are the worst enemy to fellow believers because it's like growing up in a family. Your, your children don't love each other until they get in the neighborhood with the other bullies and they have to fight together and stand together to survive. Then when they get home, they have their own fight. Huh? In this world, we're surrounded by enemies. The devil hates us. He hates you. He hates your marriage. He hates your kids. He hates your testimony. My, 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 let us not be a part of Satan's slander. And let us not dare think just because we hear of a Christian that makes some wrong choices, whether they're pastor, deacon, or just a professing Christian, Christianity does not stand on the infallibility of those who say they believe it. It stands on God who is faithful. Who is faithful. Let's stand. As you're being dismissed, I want you to, uh, and as you lock the back doors there, uh, this money, as it comes in, we'll report back to you what came in and see to it that desperate people get it. What would you rather? Would you rather need it or give it? Only God makes it possible we could be the givers. And so I'm going to pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity of sharing out of the abundance of your goodness and your mercy and your provisions to all of us. We are blessed, blessed, blessed. I thank you that my cousin's house didn't burn up. Thank you the Andrews didn't lose their house. Thank you for those that you spared. I thank you you spared my house last night. You kept the thief away. You kept the earthquake away. You kept fire away. You kept the murder away. You kept the... Uh, one that would hurt me. You've been guarding that house for years, and you've been guarding us. Your children have found a refuge in you, Jesus. In this world, I've got a prowling lion wanting to devour me, but thank God my soul has found a resting place. It has found a hiding place in the Lord Jesus, a rock and a fortress in a weary land. Well, I've found you are sufficient. You are enough. And oh, how I regret my fallibilities, my flaws, and my fickleness. But oh, I thank you, you've never been fickle.
You've never been unreliable. You've done everything you promised. You've done everything you said. You can't lie. You can't lie. You will keep your word. Help us to cling to your word and not cling to fallible personalities, but to an infallible God and an infallible word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shake hands with somebody and say, I think I love you. Or just greet them.